Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Guardian. Hey, this is Sean Kane. And I'm Claire Armistead. From the Guardian Books team. Before we get stuck into today's episode about the best new reading of the year and interview Josh Cohen about what we can learn from slackers, let's take a minute to tell you about Guardian Jobs, which is sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now, we're only just back in the office after the new year, and yes, like most people, we're feeling it a bit. But it does make a difference having good company at work. Claire and I have already caught up on our Christmas reading, of which she has done none. Oh, that's mean of you to out me in this context. Um, actually, I have done none, it is true. But I did say before Christmas that I was only going to do the zombie run app and do some running with Naomi Alderman. Yes. However, there has been so much literature-inspired television over Christmas, which is something that I usually don't have a chance to actually see as much of as I should. So I've watched The Long Song, Les Miserables, I'm in the middle of ABC Murders with John Malkovich, which I loved. I have no problem with the revisionist Poirot. I'm absolutely <laughs> fed up of David Suchet. This is your way of telling us that you basically didn't do any running and you watched a lot of telly. I watched a lot of telly. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back in the studio and Guardian Jobs can help you find your good company. It promotes a world of work where potential flourishes by connecting people with rewarding careers at like-minded organisations where values make the difference. It makes it easy to find roles that are relevant to your sector, location and seniority level. So you can trust Guardian Jobs to help you find a role where you can make a difference for yourself and your employer. And if you're a recruiter looking to attract a diverse candidate pool who share progressive values and are engaged with the world around them, trust Guardian Jobs to help you fill your vacancies with people who want to make a difference. So find your good company at gu.com goodcompany And now let's get on with this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. And I'm Richard Lee. It's our first show for 2019 and we're very pleased to be back at work, particularly you, Richard, right? <laughs> well, after speaking with Josh Cohen earlier, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> so what, what, what is he here to talk to us about today? He's talking about his latest book. He's a, Josh Cohen is a, he's an English literature professor mm. at Goldsmiths and also a psychoanalyst and he's written his latest is about not working is the title. It's about making a case for inactivity which is a kind of slightly paradoxical thing <laughs> because what he's alongside his two jobs he's gone and written a book as well <laughs> that's one of the things that I want really the, good at working the, one of the things I wanted to tax him about uh, so so what, what's his case why why should we not be working well he seems to think that it's a, a notion that he traces back to the 16th century that our sense of self-worth is all bound up with doing things all mm-hmm. the time and he seems to think this is, in the 21st century, this has reached a, a pitch that's unsustainable mm-hmm. with social media and constant distraction and the ever-increasing demands of corporate life on our every waking minute. And he reckons that we need to be able to find a space to sort of step back, to mm. find a space for actively being inactive. 
That sounds quite nice. <laughs> <Doesn't it? Yeah. laughs> and he, he writes about artists as exemplifying what he calls the four different types. It's the burnout, the slob, the daydreamer and the slacker. Um, <laughs> so he, he writes about Andy Warhol and Orson Welles and Emily Dickinson and how they kind of managed to turn their various ways of not being active into actually producing very interesting work. And, and so what, people fit into those categories neatly or could you be all four at the same time? Uh, I he, sort of <laughs> feel like I maybe <laughs> do that in one day. He claims at least two for himself so okay. I think because it's not it's not a, a rigid division between the two okay great so part of the reason I want to talk to him as well is not only the paradoxical nature of the entire book but also this idea that he has that analysis is a space for doing nothing mm-hmm. confronted with someone who's in psychological distress is, is this really enough but we started off by I started off by um, by <laughs> his subtitle is why we have to stop Right. Which sounds to me like a cry from the heart. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to check he's not actually really against working as such. Yeah, OK. No, I'm not. I don't think that's probably a tenable for, position either for me or for most people who might read this book. There was a lot of curiosity about this subtitle because, of course, it begs the question immediately, stop what? And it has a kind of slightly panicked quality to it. What is it that we have to stop I didn't want it to be construed as a transitive verb. In other words, to stop something in particular. I wanted people to think of stopping as a kind of substantive activity or a substantive non-activity in itself. We're just into the new year and people are already persecuting themselves with stopping this or that. And what I thought would be interesting would be to think about just the fact of stopping itself. What would it mean to think about it as a verb in itself rather than as a path into some item on a to-do list? The active possibility of inactivity. The active possibility of inactivity. That's lovely. So if at the coming new year you say, I have to stop smoking, I have to stop eating so much fat, you'll find that this very quickly becomes another persecutory demand and in a way pulls away from the spirit of stopping. What I wanted to do with that subtitle was to get people thinking about the verb to stop as denoting a kind of substantive activity or a substantive inactivity. A substantive lack of activity. A substantive lack of activity. To think of it not just as the negative of activity, but as a kind of state because mm, it's not exactly working as such that's a problem. It's more the, the suspect notion that we are, in some sense, defined by or limited to our work. Yes, exactly. The human being, I think, in a 24-7 networked, overworked and overstimulated culture starts to be seen almost exclusively in terms of the visible record of activity and not just seen by others, but really seen by themselves. It's almost that we start to value ourselves from the inside because of what we're producing, what we're doing. Yeah, and so there's a kind of almost a confusion or a slippage of inner life into external life. This is obviously quite visible on social media, where in order to express oneself or give a sense of oneself, we tend to list all kinds of achievements, all kinds of external facts about ourselves. Indeed, take photographs of them. Yes. Demonstrate that they have been done. Yes, exactly, yeah. And pleasure starts to be seen in terms of its externalisation. You know, one of the things about, say, Instagramming a meal, 
is that it becomes a kind of public record or document of a pleasure that was enjoyed, but it gives no sense of sort of the textured experience of what it was, you know. And I, I find that the more glossy and even the more delicious looking the photo, the the less I feel I can relate to it as a, a kind of real bodily experience. Mm. So when do you think this notion that work is anything more than just the chores we need to get through to survive, where do you think this idea comes from? I think it's quite deep rooted in the culture, but I think it has something to do with what the great sociologist Max Weber called the Protestant ethic. What Weber, in his great essay on the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, unearths is a sense of work in the modern period, defined quite broadly. Uh, This is a a long modern period, starting in the 16th century, starting really with the dissenting church, with Luther. Work as a vocation rather than a means of subsistence or even a means of ambitious movement through the world. Work as vocation, as calling, starts to have a kind of defining mark of the inner self. And then all of the inner life, all of selfhood, is somehow funneled through the fact of work. Work takes on religious significance, it becomes kind of definitive of the human being in an existential sense rather than in a merely pragmatic sense. Because as soon as you don't have an exterior kind of church or an exterior authority to define whether or not you're going to be saved, you need to prove in some sense from the inside that you're worthy. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah. And time starts to be seen as a kind of a commodity that always needs to be put to use. So you have, you know, dissenting clerics telling us that we need to take as much heed of our time and of preserving it and not wasting it as we would our gold and silver. So you divide those who resist this regulation of their time into into four-way taxonomy, the, the burnout, the slob, the daydreamer and the slacker. Which of the four types do you think you identify with most strongly yourself? Uh, yes, I will answer that one. <laughs> Um, somewhere between the daydreamer and the slacker I think I feel very identified with the slacker because I was a PhD student because it took me a very long time to be drawn into that sort of grown-up mature identity known as the working taxpayer and I think it did sort of school me in other possibilities of what Roland Barthes called the idiorhythm so it's a phrase, it's a term I love. Um, and it basically means the rhythm of life and work that is specific to you, that runs in tune with your own kind of bodily and psychic rhythms. And my experience really of being a PhD student, which I write a bit about towards the end of the book, was that it was an exercise in learning my idiorhythm and that when I try to adapt the research process and the writing process to a kind of regimented, dutiful notion of work, I went completely blank and indeed kind of sunk into a depressive inertia. This book isn't really a kind of blanket, affirmative celebration of inertia. It does recognise that there is 
a depressive dimension to it that it can leave us mired in a sense of of kind of grim purposelessness. Now, you, some of the case studies that you also yeah. describe, they describe people who are who are suffering. Yeah, from inertia of various sorts as that's well. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and that's partly, I think, because they've only ever been able to define themselves in terms of their levels of attainment and accumulation. And so, in a sense, they run their idealism according to an external agenda which has been imposed by external forces almost from birth, parents who have certain kinds of ambitions for them, and then sort of more increasingly abstract entities, schools, universities, um, vocational institutions, corporations, in the examples that I give in the book, for whom the goal of selfhood, to whom the goal of selfhood is sort of outsourced. So that the capitalist corporations are kind of trying to control ourselves through this division of our time. Yes, and I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of writers are very interested in the way that these corporate entities are not just trying to get a good working day out of us, but really trying to get a kind of employee identification. I mean, the most obvious example is Dave Eggers, who writes about this in The Circle, that it's not enough to contribute a part of one's time or a part of oneself to the flourishing of the company. One really must give oneself over to it, that they're really the ideal work, there would be no remainder. It's interesting you should mention... Uh writers because you're, you exemplify each of your four types with uh, and explore them as well through a portrait of an artist. You've got Andy Warhol, Orson Welles, Emily Dickinson and David Foster Wallace. So what's the relationship between art and inactivity that you're trying to draw out there? First of all, yeah, there's a general idea of art running through the book which begins with a kind of meditation on Tracy Emmons' famous or notorious installation, My Bed. But I'm interested less in art that thematizes inactivity, that gives us representations of laziness or lethargy or indifference or slacking, although I am very interested in those things. I also wanted to get across the idea that art for us is a kind of pr- protected reserve of inertia. Now, there are different ways we can think about this. One is simply that art is where we're, we allow ourselves a certain level of gratuitousness. To write a, a piece of literature or to enjoy any piece of art is in a way to do something that doesn't have direct utility and purpose. And also it allows us to transition from a place of concrete reality with all the boundaries and obstacles and difficulties that concrete reality imposes into an imaginative world in which we can do whatever we want without really having to do anything. There's a lovely example of this in a book from the end of the 18th century by Xavier de Mestre, which he called Voyage Around My Room, in which he records, I mean, it's a memoir, really, of being put under house arrest for the crime of duelling, a very good aristocratic crime. And he gets stuck in his bedroom for 42 days. And he says, you know, they may have thought, the authorities, that this was a punishment, but it was a liberation because in the confines of these four walls, I discovered the infinitude of my mind. And it's really about the pleasures of imaginative flight and how 
really, if you want to liberate yourself from your chains, don't try to do it in the external world where you've really got a difficult task ahead of you and all kinds of external forces that want to get in your way. If you start, at least, in the space of your mind, you'll find you can go anywhere and do anything. And yet these artists that you mentioned, they all, despite their various forms of inactivity, were immensely productive. Yeah. I, the, the things that they imagined in these imaginary spaces had real-world effects. Yeah, that's right. And I'm, I'm fascinated by their prolificity because it seems to me that it was about more than just saying, well, I'm going to take a pause from the world to be inspired and then I'm going to produce something of monumental significance. It's more that each of the people I'm thinking about channeled a certain aspect of inertia into creative life without turning it into something else. So, for example, Emily Dickinson stays alone in her room and she daydreams herself into these extraordinary poems, which really changed, I think, the whole landscape, our whole sense of what was possible in modern poetry. And she does this not by creating something that is different from the daydreaming state of mind, but which bodies it in words. Warhol, of course, is an even more obvious example of this because he makes work around inertial states, motionless objects, sleeping bodies, dead bodies. He's fascinated by this zero state in which life is cancelled out and he's I think trying to get us to commune with a dimension of that sort of living deadness in ourselves and in doing this he creates this quite immense life project in some ways incessantly repetitious but the repetition again is part of the inertial pull is that part of the explanation for the paradox at the heart of the book, this book that you've written alongside your other two jobs? Yeah. That is, in fact, a, that is in some sense a, a call to do nothing, is in fact, by its very existence, the production of a very active mind. Yeah, I think that's true. I want to distinguish it from the more commonplace notion that if you take a rest you know, which is beloved of sort of corporate gurus, that it's good to take a rest, it's good to slow down a bit because then you'll be more productive. It's true that there are real creative and productive possibilities in inertia, but what I'm trying to say is that one doesn't have to become active or sort of busy in order to realise those creative possibilities. And what those four examples show really in very, very different ways is that... There's something about the inertial impulse that can be marshaled for creativity, but in the form of inertia, not in the form of something else, not in the form of activity. Is that also a way of explaining the, the problem that you might say that critics have with the very discipline of psychoanalysis, where in some sense that they say that it's just talk for mere sake of it? Yeah, very then much it, so. Yeah, and it's very much against the grain and I think was at its inception actually of a notion of quick fix solutions to mental health problems. The idea that really our aim is to go direct to the heart of the problem 
and to deal with it as efficiently as we can. Now that to me betrays the very texture of the mind. What Freud discovers when he discovers this technique is not just something more efficacious. He's actually trying to mimic in the technique of the therapy the way the mind works. And he says the mind doesn't really respond to being penetrated directly. It tends to defend itself against that. It tends to ward off any attempts to get straight into its marrow. And so you have to walk gingerly around it in concentric circles. And so psychoanalysis, in a way, has to go slowly. It has to go associatively. It has to meander. That's why psychoanalyses are long. That's why there is this strange effect of being an analysis where you sort of, you have a session. And of course, some sessions can be genuinely revelatory and important, but some can be important in a way because they weren't important because you sort of talk through a few things. It was a bit aimless. There might have been a bit of insight. There might have been a bit of silence. But somehow you've tuned in to an element, a way of being that tends to be excluded from kind of the workaday reality of, of most of our lives. That kind of possibility of aimlessness, that yeah. possibility of not actually having to produce anything, is that, is that enough for people in distress, for people in need of help? It can be. Um, it, it can be actually an immense relief, particularly if the distress does have something to do with a kind of overburdened mind. I mean, certainly in those examples of burnout that I talk about in the first part of the book, there is something about immediate liberation from the obligation to produce something. You know, unlike more behaviorally oriented therapies, we don't set homework. We don't think that people need to read psychoanalysis, although it's fine if they do. They don't need to sort of work around the therapy. In a way, they can just sit there or lie there and they can just talk or not talk. And that sense of a kind of holiday from the obligations to be fulfilling a target or to be doing something in particular does have an immediate relieving effect. Is it enough? Almost certainly not. But it creates the conditions, if you're lucky, if, if the cards fall in the right way, you have the right analyst with the right patient, then it's, it creates the conditions for it being enough. And for, for the rest of us, with the new year opening before us, who may be feeling that there's an endless list of things to do, do we need to find something similar in our own lives, a, a space for doing nothing? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I like the idea of psychoanalysis as a kind of good exemplar of doing nothing rather than the thing that you have to do to learn to do nothing because that sounds rather didactic and also rather smug because after all not, not everybody has the time or the money to invest in six months or a year or eight years of, of, of analysis. Analysis gives you a certain orientation to the world I think and that orientation really is a valuing of that dimension of our minds, which I think is very large, in, in which mental activity occurs without any purpose, without any sense of what it's doing. And we have a tendency to dismiss or even really make fun of that part of our minds. And really one of the things that I'm trying to encourage in this book is a kind of a curiosity about that part of the mind that goes more in the direction 
of inactivity and doing less rather than doing more. Maybe we should just, right here, right now, maybe we should just agree to down tools. That would be very good. So there's four categories. There's slob, burnout, slacker, or daydreamer. I could definitely be all four of those things simultaneously, probably, <laughs> let alone in the same day. What about you, Richard? I don't know. I reckon, for me, the, the touchstone is slacker. The big Lebowski is, you know. It's the, <laughs> it's the way to go. I'm imagining Although, you were in the sort of the dude's robe, <laughs> buying milk at the I don't the know if I stretched to a robe. Exactly. <laughs> there, there are people who around in my family who would definitely uh, finger me out as a slob. But <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your desk. I know that's true. <laughs> that was uh, Richard speaking to Josh Cohen and his book, Not Working, Why We Have to Stop, is published by Granta. And we'll be back right after this with the books we're most looking forward to in 2019. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Over the last few months, we've begun to collect piles of books for 2019 on our desks. Claire has joined us. Hello, Claire. Hi. Are you pleased to be back at work? Oh, I wouldn't exactly put it like that. Less time to read books, obviously. <laughs> we were just talking to Josh Cohen about his book, Not Working, but there's a couple other books that are coming out that are about not working as well, right? Yeah, I wondered whether this was the beginning of a trend. One always begins the year looking for what's going to be the big fashion for the coming season. And I thought I might have spotted an anti-work trend <laughs> because there is also another January book called Lab Rats by Dan Lyons. It's subtitled Why Modern Work Makes People Miserable. But Richard thinks it might be just a bit of two, two canny publishers thinking of something to fill the January gap. I slightly think it's time. a bit of a, a canny January move. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, we've had so much stuff about work, haven't we? I think we might have a bit of a leisure boom coming up. I mean, after all, it's what faces quite a lot of us, doesn't it? Well, we've all got a bit of obsession with this idea of the, uh, the four-day work work week that you know we keep seeing businesses in New Zealand doing and then we all wistfully sort of look out the window and <laughs> dream of a better future <laughs> and go back to our desks and our computers it's it's, it's a, a so sort of thing that it's a sort of like sleep it's sort of one of those things that's just going to be like perennially interesting to us isn't it yeah and, and also at this time of year it's a bit of a 
a bit of a fantasy, isn't it? You're just, you're just knuckling down. To <laughs> Not the... working, sleeping properly. <laughs> Absolute dream. <laughs> actually, having started on a bit of a negative note, I actually have seen, my, my eyes have been lighting up it's like a candy shop looking at the catalogues. We have on, on the books desk, we collate all the books that are coming up in the year into this huge, great long list, um, which has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books in it. And it sort of is, it is a book lover's sweetie shop, really, isn't it? Yeah, some very exciting things. Them. You mm. don't get fat on them. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of great because you go through it and you just sort of go, ooh, like, ooh, that's nice. I'll make note of that sort of thing. And then when it actually comes out, it's very very exciting because you sort of got a taster for it about three months before yeah occasionally they just pa- pass by and you think oh oh i, I was looking yeah. forward to that oh, oh, whoops. i was really excited about that six months ago and i haven't read it at all <laughs> so i mean if we're talking about the sort of things that that are news stories almost or may shape up into news stories one of the things i'm looking forward to is Kristen rupenian's you know you want this which is short stories she was the writer who did the new yorker sh- short story cat person got a huge amount of publicity for but and it was very clever it was slightly in the Sally Rooney vein wasn't it yes. of, uh, you know you just said this is this is modern millennial angst yes. writ, writ large and it's sort of the script to our n- new lives that we've all been looking for and particularly people like you Sean <laughs> have been looking for <laughs> I don't know if I was looking for it because I ended up having to write about five bloody articles <laughs> about the same short story in the end but um I do I do think that they, she's got a real talent for recording the realities of dating and the reality of work and just sort of like young people's lives right now mm. she's, she's really nailed it and she is a bit like Sally in that way that she has nailed it so I'm excited for that collection too and and when's, uh, when's that due? that's out in um, March and in then March. then on the on, on, in slightly the same vein I went over to Dublin to interview Sally just before Christmas and she was I was asking her about who her contemporaries are because there is a sense of this huge energy coming out of Ireland at the moment and we all know about people like Kevin Barry and people who, who've been around for a bit but there's a, sort of a yet a new generation a lot of whom are coming through this magazine called Stinging Fly which Sally Rooney has edited the last two editions of and one of the writers that she mentioned is Nicole Flattery whose collection of short stories show them a good time is out also in March. So we, we always we're always interested as journalists as as to whether this might be the next new big thing. Probably won't, but there you go. I, I read one of Nicole's Flattery's short stories in Stinging Fly. It was a terrific story. It's great. Yeah. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that as well. Actually. Yeah. Richard, what books are you looking forward to this year? Yeah, well, one something that's happening almost right now, I mean, it just, it's published just later in the month, is Lewis Darknell, who's got a book called Origins, that Bodley Headed bringing out at the, the, the end of this month, uh, which charts how humans are shaped by the planet that we come from. It's kind of a geology and evolution and all that, and how that feeds into kind of things like this, this extraordinary map he's got in there of the presidential election from 2016 with this little, this there's this line of blue of people voting Democrat across the South in Alabama and Georgia and so on. And he traces that back to the presence of rocks, mm-hmm. uh, which were laid down 75 million years ago. It's the most extraordinary story. Mm. And it's, it's a big picture history at, at, at its best. Do you, do you think that big picture history is as current now as it was? I mean, it, I, I was wondering whether it had slightly gone out of fashion. 
But his his take on it is that he's doing something slightly new because he's a scientist. His research is in it, whether there's life has been existing on Mars before, and he tries to bring this kind of scientific take to it to try and underpin these stories with research from from peer reviewed research from from papers. So he's trying to do something slightly different, I think. But it's 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 rather it's also a nice way of getting slightly further away from the hurly burly of, of everyday life and you know the next crisis at Westminster or Donald Trump or whatever, and taking a slightly larger view, which I think is a, an appeal that won't go away and how about fiction for you in fiction i'm very much looking forward to something from valeria luiselli her stuff is fantastic i mean the last thing we that we had her on was a, a collection of essays about children coming from the south america into the u.s and the, the legal trouble they get and and this is a kind of novel which explores the same sort of territory and that's part yeah. of the reason why i think it's so interesting because it's such a vital issue this the migrants i think is going to be uh, uh, this year next year the year to come it's, it's going to define our time and she's it's a, a novel which looks at a family going around the south of the united states as she did herself with her husband and her kids in 2014 she talked about it last time so it, it reimagines that journey and also puts it alongside the journeys of people coming the other way it's and like, having being a mexican who lives in the states she's yeah. sort of perfectly placed to be the chronicler of this isn't she yeah very much so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if there's novels from people in europe that do much the same thing with the kind of mediterranean transfer as well so one I'm quite excited about, and one that I've actually already started, is the new Marlon James book. Everyone will remember that Marlon James won the 2016 Man Booker Prize for his book, uh, A Brief History of Seven Killings. And uh, he's got his next book out, which is called Black Leopard, Red Wolf, uh, which is the first in a big sort of African fantasy trilogy that he's been working on for quite a long time. So this is going to be the first instalment in that. And it follows a guy called Tracker, who is a hunter, who is it tasked with finding a, a child he's given uh, the task of hunting down this child and he teams up with a sort of band of mercenaries and uh, while when he starts this sort of quest he uh, starts questioning the reasons why he's been assigned to find this child and I've only just started it but it looks really really exciting and is, that's is it definitely fantasy not SS yes yeah. yeah I mean it's a sort of thing that it, it's fantasy but um, he sort of talked about like trying to make a, a sort of like African Middle Earth Mm. sort of thing so he's because got because there's been a whole... bit of science fiction coming from uh, for, with kind of African yeah, roots and well, so, but I haven't seen fantasy very much no I mean it's the sort of thing like there's there's a radical Nendi Okorafor who's um, done a real blend of the two and there is this whole sort of boom of things like Black Panther and interest in Afrofuturism this really doesn't feel like Afrofuturism it feels just like it feels like fantasy but very rooted in African mythology so it might veer into sort of a bit of Afrofuturism because it's certainly not necessarily a world that we would recognise. So he could go there in perhaps books two and three, mm. but it, it, it's sort of it's feeling very unique, and I'm really enjoying it. Such a weighty book, so unexpected. I, I never would have expected Marlon James to go down that route. Well, there was an interview he did with the Observer a couple of years ago. I think it was just sort of like around when uh, Seven Killings came out in paperback or something, and someone asked him what he was going to be working on next, and he sort of sold it as like a big Viking-esque African fantasy. And as soon as he said sort of African Vikings, I was like, hell yeah. yeah but I mean, <laughs> that's that's so exactly exciting. What, that's exactly what Tolkien did with the myths of the North, didn't yeah. it? I mean, and, and there's no reason why myths from Africa shouldn't, couldn't have exactly the same kind of richness. Exactly. Yeah. And so as soon as someone goes, says, oh, well, I'm doing that, you're like, hell yeah, you're doing that. <laughs> no one else is. I want to read it. There's so. another there's another book that's kind of rooted in Africa that I'm looking forward to as well. It's from Elizabeth Jane Burnett, who has published her first book of poetry, uh, I think last year, with um, Penned in the Margins. We talked to her. And this is the memoir that she was 
talking about working on when she was mm. when she was talking about her book of poetry. So she's one of the first writers to come through the Penguin Random House Right Now program, which they launched in 2016, to look for, as they say, underrepresented voices, voices we don't usually see on the bookshelves. Mm. And it's it's a very interesting story that she's got because her her dad's from Devon, from this Devon village where she grew up, and her mother's from Kenya. And so she's kind of digging back into soil and family life and actually the death of her father who died just recently. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. It's coming in March from Alan Lane. While we're on that particular, the theme of underrepresented voices, one of the ones I am very excited about is Jay Bernard's Surge. Mm. Jay Bernard won the Ted Hughes Award with a work in progress last year. And this is their first published collection. And Jay is transgender and black and a fabulously good historian and this surge apparently goes from the New Cross fire back in the 1980s which they've already written about to Grenfell Tower so I think it's going to be political meaty and you know their their talent is is actually without question. And is there a sort of show at a live event that goes with it, or is it just no, the no, words this on is, the page? This is this is what's really interesting. Again, it's you know under you talk about underrepresented communities. The, the performance poetry community is incredibly underrepresented on the page, on the shelf. They yeah. are on the shelf, not not in not in the arena. Mm. Um, so this sort of crossover thing, I think, is. It's really exciting. Yeah, there's another right now mentee who's got a who's, who's got a book out. Nels Abbey uh, has got a, a satirical kind of self-help book called Think Like a White Man, which Canongate mm-hmm. bringing out in May, uh, which I haven't seen at all yet. But it sounds it says you should follow the white man commandment, which is to winning justifies anything and everything. <laughs> so, so although it's it's a Penguin Random House initiative, it's not them who are necessarily publishing the resulting books. No, I think I think there's a kind of mentoring program that helps people develop their work, mm-hmm. and then after that they may or may not get a book deal with Penguin Yeah, because just before Christmas, actually, I went up to Durham to um, interview Pat Barker. And um, we were talking about working class voices and minority voices. And she was saying, oh, she had a feeling that actually publishing was really, really beginning to make strides and including getting regional voices. That's like, about time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was quite, when, when I left, I was wondering whether she was being a bit sort of Panglossian about it, whether that was actually true. But it is true that a lot of this, that there has been a lot of groundwork laid. It's like the piping's been laid underneath the pavements and sooner or later there'll suddenly be a subway exit and that mm. they'll all come. <laughs> right. Well, I've got a couple of like big names uh, to sort of contrast against all the new names that we've just spoken about. First of all, Biggest news of the year, probably, in terms of book announcements, was uh, Margaret Outwood's Handmaid's Tale sequel, The Testaments, which is due in September. We don't really know very, very much at this, at this stage, but we just know that it's going to be diverging from where the television programme of The Handmaid's Tale has gone, and it will be telling the story through the perspectives of three different women. Um, so not necessarily just Offred, who was the protagonist in The Handmaid's Tale. Also in April, we've got the new Ian McEwan, which is uh, Machines Like Me, which does sound really quite interesting to me. I remember when this was announced, Claire, we were talking about McEwan and his sort of, where he's ever really entered into sci-fi territory. And then we looked into it and realised that actually he's got a really long history of going into sort of science fiction areas. Um, In fact, Atonement started out as a science fiction novel. Fact. That's a pub quiz fact. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so this one's really very firmly uh, in that territory. um, And it's set in an alternate London uh, in the 1980s. And it's a Thatcher versus Tony Benn. And Alan Turing is still alive and has made some great advancements in in AI technology. And it sort of focuses on a love triangle between uh, two human individuals and then an AI individual. And uh, it sounds quite cool. 
there was a slightly ropey short story that sort of touched on AI that went in the Daily Mail recently and I read it and went, oh God, Ian, please tell me this isn't part of your book because this is actually quite bad. But I've got my fingers crossed uh, for the book that it might be a bit better. And and talking about people, well-known writers making departures into fantasy or myth or whatever, whatever one calls it and there's also coming out in May Mark Haddon is back oh, Mark yeah. Haddon so what's of he doing? The Curious Incident The Dog in the Nighttime who his most recent novel The Red House was published seven years ago wow. and it was totally undervalued I was having a conversation about it with a with a publishing friend the other day and we were both saying oh, why did people not get that book you know mm. just it's just one of those things it just slightly missed I think it was too subtle he's such a he wears his sophistication so lightly he's mm. one of those writers that's sort of in danger of going under the radar he did do he has since written a really good really good um, collection of short stories called The Pier Falls but I think he's just getting better and better and so here we have him back again with the porpoise, which is um, based on the story of Pericles, Prince of Tyre, who we obviously know of Pericles from Shakespeare, but he goes back into sort of the 14th century to medieval poem. And it's sort of modern lives mixed with myth, sea, land, dramatic chases, dangers, peril, you know, <laughs> plane heading for disaster. But it's not like Mark Haddon at it's, all. I know, I know. And and but I have two people I really trust have read it, and they are they say it's absolutely brilliant. Oh great! So so How exciting. Go Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Mark. Just a couple uh, last books that I am uh, very excited about. There is an unnamed Thomas Harris thriller to come, which is his first non-Hannibal book for forty years, um, which I'm actually quite excited about. Though I'm very sad to not have the sassy cannibal back in another book but I will probably read this regardless but that's I have to look at your uh, look at your psychology Sean when you describe Hannibal as sassy (laughs) he's so sassy (laughs) he's such a snob I kind of love him um he's uh that's due out in May um so I'm looking forward to that but we uh, don't have any plot and we don't have any title and we don't have a cannibal so (laughs) <laughs> and a couple of extra ones from me. Um, one is um, Gingerbread by Helen Oyoyemi, which is out in March. It's a, a magic realist London set fairy tale story. She's you, People will remember her from, from novels including Mr Fox, amazingly inventive writer who pops up not as frequently as we would like, but is always worth watching. And the other one is Lanny, which is a novel from Max Porter, who arrived from nowhere with Brief is the Thing with Feathers. Mm. He's, he's, he's amazing. He's a former bookseller who became a publisher and now has, has taken to writing like a bird to the air. And this is described as under Milk Woodish. It's about a village outside London and it's one of those multi-voice narratives. Yeah, and he's got playing all sorts of games with the text which kind of flies all over the page. It looks really amazing. So you've actually seen it? Yeah, yeah. No, kind of there's crosses and dots flying around as well. And, it, and as you say, it's it's kind of chapter by chapter, it's different people speaking and this this kind of old grandpa figure who kind of strides across it as far as I can see. It's very interesting. We haven't had much non-fiction, so I might um, mention David Kiniston and Francis Green who've got a book in February called Engines of Privilege about the inequality driven by public schools and also what might be done about it, which I think is very urgent. And Emma Dabiri, who's um, due in March from Anne and Lane with a personal history of black hair and kind of the meaning of that and how that's changed over the, over the years. And then continuing with non-fiction, we've got Sarah Pascoe a little later in the year, in August, with Sex, Power, Money, which is the book she was promising when she was on the podcast talking about animals. She was promising to write a book about men and porn, which made me cringe. (laughs) Uh, But she's delivering it in August, so um, we, we have that to look forward to as well. Lovely. Well, so we've got a bunch of anti-work books. We've got some underrepresented voices. 
new approaches to fantasy and a new boom in Ireland. There's so much to look forward to this year and uh, hopefully we'll have some of these authors on the show later in the year too. Uh, Thank you for joining us for another year of reading and remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. From me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. Thank you and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.